0: Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon.
1: I'm Erin Dewar. And we are not in print.
0: Lachlan Philpot is a playwright, director and teacher. He graduated from the University of New South Wales, the Victorian College of the Arts and NIDA's Playwright Studio. He has previously been Artistic Director of Tantrum Theatre in Newcastle, Writer-in-Residence at Red Stitch in Melbourne, and the Literary Associate at ATYP. His plays have been performed across Australia as well as Ireland, the UK and the USA. They include Air Torture, Bison, Bus Town, Catapult, Colder, Due Monday, Running Under the Sprinkler and Truck Stop. The play we're here to talk about today, Silent Disco, won the 2009 Griffin Award and the Stage Award at the 45th Annual Orgy Awards. Tamara and Jason are in love. Jason wants to take Tamara to the formal, but he hasn't got the cash. And in a world of absent mothers and distant fathers, Miss Petchel battles to keep another year of students out of the ranks of the vanished. The Outsiders is on the syllabus again, but instead of socks and greasers, this is the world of speds and skanks, fuelled by Red Bull and powered by iPods. And Tamara and Jason come to realise just how hard it can be to find your own rhythm when everyone is marching to the beat of a different drum. Lachlan, thank you for talking to us about your play, Silent Disco. You've said that if playwrights can entertain and also make a really strong point, that their work will always be more exciting. And I'm interested to hear what the catalyst was that made you want to write Silent Disco.
2: I think one of the things is I've always liked writing stories for younger audiences. And Silent Disco, while it appeals to a wider audience, I think I did write it, particularly for a younger audience. Um, you know, having a background in youth theatre and having kind of got into theatre through um, being a part of a youth theatre and also having the belief that if we want theatre to actually continue to be relevant or even, God help us, increase in its relevance and the, the sort of things that it might be able to offer to us as a culture, then I think we need to actually attract young audiences into the theatre. So that was one of the reasons why I wrote Silent Disco because I wanted to you know, continue the work that I'm doing writing for young audiences. And I guess also I had a story to tell. Um, I come from a family of teachers and so I kind of fell back on teaching, as many people do, and um, went to teach after running a youth theatre at a school in Leichhardt. And it happened to be an interesting school because there's a lot of students there who are from areas in inner Sydney that are fairly disadvantaged. There are also kids there who are taking part in a special ed program and then there's a selective stream. So it was this really kind of interesting blend of uh, students in one very small environment. Is that where you drew from to create this kind of multiplicity? Yeah, I, I do tend to do quite a lot of research for most of my plays, particularly when you're telling other people's stories, because I think you have to be really mindful of the responsibility that writers have and the responsibility that storytellers have. And it's not always to get it right, but it's to get the complexities of it. If we're only trying to get it right, then it becomes a bit censorious and problematic. So for this play, I guess a lot of the research was probably being done while I was teaching in a classroom none of them were interested remotely in what was being taught. And it seemed to me that the curriculum was, on the whole, fairly irrelevant. And it was, you know, because they were being asked to read things like Anne of Green Gables or The Secret Garden. When you look at books like that and you look at the faces of the kids who you're meant to be teaching, you can see that there's a huge gap between the content of their classes and their level of interest. And so I think, you know, i have certainly well, not the only teacher who asked the questions about what we're actually trying to teach. But I felt like there's a complexity in the people in those classes that reflected the kind of complexity of what's going on in Sydney and particularly like the inner kind of inner suburbs of Sydney that we make a lot of assumptions about and I think they've all been gentrified. But there's still a lot of people who are disadvantaged living next door to people who are earning huge amounts of money. There are cultures that are being pushed out, particularly Aboriginal cultures in inner city Sydney. You know, you have to look at what's going on in the block in Redfern to kind of acknowledge that things are changing and not necessarily for the better. And you have to ask questions about how these people live in a day-to-day way in these places that are changing and what the impact of those changes are on them.
1: We learn as much about these characters in the privacy of their homes as we do in the all-too-public arena of high school. In the case of Tamara and Jason, how do you think their public and private lives influence their behaviour and shape their moral codes?
2: A lot of people who are kind of privileged enough to have a family who support their dreams or they go to a school where they might have a writing club or whatever, then You know, that's a very different thing to going to a school that's fairly disadvantaged where you have to fit in and the only way to fit in is to pretend that you're tough and mean. You know, when we're looking at teenage years as well, it's a time when um, we're kind of juggling a whole lot of complex things that are trying to add up to one identity. So for Tamara, I always think of what a loner she is in a way. I mean, she actually doesn't really seem to have any particularly close friends at school. She has a connection with Desi at Golo, but Desi uh, and her outlook are fairly limiting and limited. She's trying to survive in a family that's obviously broken. Her dad is not very supportive and not particularly communicative and he's obviously dealing with a lot of other issues that come out later in the, in the play. And her mum has kind of left her for something better. And I also think with Tamara it's interesting because she's a very bright person and she has an ambition to be a writer but she doesn't necessarily have any place to actually articulate that sort of emerging literary sensibility. So if you come from a background where no one's interested in you talking about that sort of stuff, then how do you develop that? You know, where does that sort of voice get nurtured? That's where the character Petrel comes in and is so important too.
1: Mm, She's kind of like the audience's moral compass. And like her, we question what will become of these young people in the play. She's been called a ray of hope a warrior fighting against boredom and truancy in her classrooms. Why is she so isolated, do you think, in this fight?
2: She's fighting a system where teachers are probably overworked and where there are too many demands on them to actually be able to do their job well because it's not just about teaching them maths or English or whatever else it might be. It's actually about teaching them as human beings and you take them on as human beings. And I know when I used to teach, you'd worry about, the kids that you taught, because you could see that some of them were going through things that deserved your concern, particularly if they weren't necessarily getting supported at home. It's interesting in the play that uh, Petchel obviously lives in an area where a lot of her students live too, and for her to kind of move through that area, she sees a whole lot of kids who she had had hope for who haven't necessarily amounted to what they may have had they been given more support. And it's interesting, I mean, a lot of the scenes that didn't end up getting into the play too were kind of scenes where she'd run into ex-students and some of them were more positive or hopeful than the ones that actually kind of um, end up in the play. I mean, look at her running into Desi and Golo. I think she knows what's going to happen to Desi much before Desi knows what's going to happen to her.
1: What are the challenges or the triumphs that she faces in this play?
2: I mean, I think her challenge is to keep going uh, you know, what keeps her going? And I think when Squid comes into the classroom and threatens Tamara, she is, is really the only person, who I think, who can save the situation in a way. And yet to do that, she has to kind of cross a line where she turns around and says, she's just a dumb slut who fucked your brother, is the line. And, you know, actors have had trouble making that work. And I understand why, because they question whether a teacher would say that. But I think, you know, in that situation... It's pretty desperate and I don't know what, what else she's got to stop the situation escalating. No, and, I wondered
1: I, if it was his, her way of getting on Jason's side.
2: Yeah, I think it is and I think she decides that she has to do that at the expense of Tamara hmm. and that's a tough one to do because you know she's earned Tamara's trust and she's the one who's actually been encouraging her to realise her ambitions as a writer and to state school and to keep going. So I think she has to make a choice there because as much as you... You know, we want like to idealise teaching as being a replacement parent. There are also expectations and there are limitations. Mm. And you know, you can only do so much for for somebody, and you can only you know, to be really cliche, lead a horse to water, but you can't you know, make a drink. And I think that that's what she kind of realises with both Tamara and Jason.
1: Do you think she triumphs at all, in any small way?
2: I don't know, because I, I feel like if we had the sequel, then we could kind of see where she ends up. I mean, she's there at the end in and she goes into the formal, but her spirit is slightly wary. Maybe it's not broken, but I think it is wary, and I think it's probably not the hopeful kind of ending that people might like, but it's also quite realistic in that sense of it's, it's really hard, I think, to just keep going if you're a teacher and you know, you're kind of in a school and people move on and you're still doing the same job and you're still trying to keep the same energy up that you have to because it's not like any year of students in a school get any easier than the last. They're all people who all kind of require the same energy and commitment. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult one.
1: Noel Jordan writes, Ironically, the scene from which the play takes its title is the one genuine moment of connection between its lead characters. Tamara says at one point in this scene, We face each other in the silent disco, right there and then, everything else blown away, just you and me, Squid. While he says that this is their only moment of genuine connection, I would argue that there's a number of subtle, emotional, perhaps subconscious needs going on and connections that are going on between these two, why do you think they're drawn to each other?
2: They're both loners. I think they probably both recognise the pain and challenges that that each other have, even though they're not necessarily spoken about a lot. I mean, there's also just the reality of them being attracted to each other on a kind of physical uh, level. Mm. I think Tamara too initially is attracted to Squid because of his brother. And that's one of the seeds of issues in, or the seed of the issue in the play for her as well is that, you know, she, quite early on she kind of says flippantly, you're not as hot as your brother or what, you don't look like your brother. And I think there is kind of something about her aspirations too. Whereas I think for me, you know, in the, in the relationship, Squid is the more loyal of the two and he probably actually has a deeper sense of feeling for Tamara than she has for him, which is a bit sad really.
1: I want to talk about the way that these two protagonists cope with stress When faced with moments of crisis, do you think they're even equipped to cope?
2: No, not really. And I think that's why they make bad decisions, particularly, I think, when we're talking about forging a relationship. For both of them, it's the first relationship that they've had. And I think that they're trying to actually um, make the relationship work. But what role models have they got? I mean, they both come from broken homes. They both have parents who have let them down and let their partner down in some way. So I think it becomes really, really difficult to do that. And even, even though they try, I think that they end up kind of being victims in their own circumstances.
1: And there's that moment when she finds out about her father's HIV diagnosis uh, and she spirals into this series of questions upon hearing the news. How did he get it? Will I get it? Have I got it? Will he die? If he dies, what will happen to me? Who should I tell? Who shouldn't I tell? And the next day she's late for her exam and she totally ignores Helen's attempts to help her out. Is Dane's text at this point, is that just really unfortunate timing? Why do you think she gives in to him?
2: I think she's totally overwhelmed. And I think that the response to the revelation about her dad's illness is one of the moments when her immaturity is really revealed. To her. I mean, that that those questions are not necessarily rational questions, particularly, you know, in this day and age, but they kind of go back to that kind of core of paranoia and uh, a childish response to finding out something like that. And also, I guess, that sort of insecurity where I think when things go wrong, you do kind of go, oh, my God, if there's no one left, how do I take care of myself?
1: Well, let's talk about Jason's way of coping with his world. Jason's pretty mother has a history of infatuations which have led her to abandon them repeatedly, leaving him and his brother Dane to their aunt. Dane is in jail for dealing drugs. Jason says in scene one, who cares about opinions? No one gives a fuck about what we think anyway. Do you think he's resigned to this attitude and to his lot or is he more resilient than others give him credit for?
2: I think it's a bit of a combination of both and I think he's testing things out as well. I think you know, when we're teenagers, we do test things out to see how they kind of work for us mm. as well. So I think he's kind of throwing his weight around in the classroom a little bit, but I think it also does come from a wiser perspective. You know, his opinion doesn't seem to count in a lot of other areas of his life. So when he's asked to give his opinion in the classroom, you know, it it doesn't necessarily ring true because no one does seem to care about his opinion. And I guess, oddly enough, then when he comes back in at the end and he kind of says he's just giving his opinion, then, you know, he's turning that back in Petrel's face a little bit, which is, you know, obviously kind of deliberate. I think it's about testing things out. And it's not just when you're a teenager, but I think particularly when you're a teenager, There are moments when you feel like you're invincible and you're kind of on top of the world and everything's going to go right. And there are other moments when you feel tiny and hopeless and unsure of yourself and you you kind of have to ask these questions about what the point of it all is. And I I think that is something that's not just about this generation. I think that's something that's kind of constant because you're trying to negotiate who you are.
1: And he's kind of been groomed to think in a particular way too, though, by his family and his, his upbringing.
2: Yeah, and I think his family are kind of identified very strongly in the rugby league world. And I think that his brother was a rising star and has obviously kind of been shamed by what he's done and that's had a huge impact on him too. So his identity has been removed from him Mm. by his brother. and I think the impact of that is quite far-reaching for him as well.
1: Mm. Let's talk about how these two broken birds come together. Um, It's the first time either of them have been in love. It develops without the influence of these positive role models that we've been speaking about for either of them. How does this shape their approach to each other?
2: They don't necessarily know how to express affection towards each other. So their communication is very roundabout. And I think also that they like each other, but they don't necessarily know what it is to love each other or how that might actually manifest as well. You know, And I guess it's that question too about whether Tamara actually really loves Squid or whether in fact she just likes the idea of him and she likes the idea of being in love and she likes the idea of somebody to take to the formal. And, you know, I think for Squid, he's not used to talking about these sort of things either. He doesn't necessarily have the vocabulary to express his affection so he asks these really kind of feeble questions over and over again which end up just pissing Tamara off. But I think he actually what he's trying to do is get a bit deeper and even though she talks a lot, she never really gives away anything except for in these kind of moments when the audience is kind of privileged to come to an understanding of her inner world that none of the characters in the play or the people in her world are actually really let into. And then they would only really be let into it if they were actually to able to kind of unlock what she's writing about.
1: Mm.
0: Lachlan, I'd like to talk about the way that prejudice and bigotry is presented in the piece because clearly you were trying to explore the complexity of what lies beneath them. In one scene, Squid says racism sucks, but soon after he makes fun of Gary, a special ed student. He also has a problem with Tamara calling Tan a slaphead, but he doesn't mind her calling him a chink. And Tamara has double standards too. She gets very angry with Lawrence for implying that Squid won't encourage her to stay at school because of the colour of his skin. But she also thinks that all Muslims are freaky. Can you talk to us about the social and emotional dynamics behind these contradictions?
2: Yeah, I mean... I think it's, it partly relates to what I was saying before about teenagers testing out ideas and also saying things and then thinking later, oh, that doesn't make sense. But I think obviously there's deliberate contradictions in the play. And I think that's because of you know what we have going on in Australia too, where we have some people claiming that we're a very harmonious multicultural society. And then you only have to take a very kind of short look around to see that. And in fact, you know, there are a lot of assumptions about what harmony is and there's an awful lot of racism in Australia. And I think what interests me in a lot of ways is, you know, where humour and racism or where humour and bigotry kind of cross a line and where it's OK to m- to say something because it's funny. And so if it gets a laugh, it's supposedly supposed to be OK. And I think, you know, quite a lot of the time is that, that those sort of comments are the most hurtful and they also become part of our psyche. So we have a school which has obviously got kids from a whole range of different racial backgrounds and it's almost like there's a pecking order, you know. So if you're a special ed student, does that mean you sit below the, the student who, you know, has an Asian background and does that do they sit below the person who has a white background and then where does the Aboriginal person go in? And ultimately it's a really unacceptable way of looking at the the way that we actually work together in a community like a school or in the wider kind of nation but it is, I think, in some ways, the way that people think.
0: I wonder if you think that prejudice and bigotry are tied to the character's sense of powerlessness.
2: I think they are in that sense. If you're feeling powerless, then if you can claim power over somebody who's perceived as being lesser than you in the playground or you know, within that sort of environment, then it might give you a little bit more feeling of power. Do you think that it can be remedied? I hope that it can be remedied. I think that we've got a long way to go in Australia. And I think you know that that's why it's important that we're writing about this sort of stuff in, in the theatre as well. And I think it's actually about some really honest conversations and some really honest theatre that actually shows how things are so that we can see it played out before us. You
0: said that a recurring theme throughout your work is the idea that we're all alone and we can never really know anyone else. And in his introduction to Silent Disco, Noel Jordan says that Tamara and Jason are from a generation that tunes out and retreats into its own pulsating soundtrack with a tiny piece of technology that allows them to remove themselves from the immediacy of their own experience. So let's talk about the Silent Disco, where people are plugged into iPods, dancing to their own beats, but surrounded by others. What's the appeal for Tamara and Jason?
2: I think it's just a novelty, but I think it's also a world they can step into where they're actually allowed to do what they seem to like doing the best, which is listening to their own sounds or their own music. I think it's also interesting in um, a way of, if you think about young people and the sort of control that they have over their surroundings, teenagers don't really own very much. They might be lucky enough to have their own bedroom, which they can decorate how they like, or, you know, when they get older, they might have a car. But I think having an iPod or whatever they might have is actually one way where they can actually exercise a bit of control and choice over the world. And we all experience that feeling of being able to block out the world by choosing our own sound or by at least making it a bit more bearable. And I think the silent disco world is really kind of interesting in that way that there's this irony of them being together and sharing this moment of connection that Aaron was talking about before. But actually, they're probably listening to different songs as well. Um, So as much as they're connected in their way, they're not connected in a way that we probably would necessarily think of as being really connected And I guess it is, it's like what Petrel talks about in the play too, when she talks about the school discos of old, where, you know, everyone would come together in the Daggy School Hall and listen to all the kind of 80s songs or whatever. But there was something different about that because people were actually all dancing to the same tune and they were connected because of the music. And I think that that's a real distinction there. And that was, you know, I guess that's what I was kind of driving at in a way with the
0: play as well. But Petrel understands why they would find it appealing, that moment where she plugs into the stolen iPod, and I think she's listening to Eminem, I can't remember the exact song, but she says that the whole world is now dancing to her soundtrack, her beat.
2: Yeah, in that moment I think the appeal to Petrel is that she's in a careers show where she's surrounded by a whole lot of young people who are about to, or potentially make choices about what they can do with the rest of their life, and she's already made her choices, and you know she's at a point where those choices are hard to live with. Um, so I think, that, I think there's that. I think it's also just kind of opening up to understanding something that's not allowed. You know, if she's constantly spending time in the classroom going, take that out, you can't listen to the iPod. I think she kind of submits to it and realises and understands why it's a bit of fun. You've said that
0: you often try to create a form that fits the content So I want to talk to you about the way that the characters' monologues paint a picture of their environment. This stream of consciousness, it offers audiences and readers an added dimension. In certain moments, they even teeter on third-person narration, and I wonder what you think they bring to the story.
2: I think for me it's something about those moments in our lives when we actually aren't doing anything but things are going on around us. It's about being either let into someone's inner world or it's about being let into what somebody else is seeing in their world, which is a different thing to just hearing their thoughts. Can you
0: tell us about Tamara's literary vision of the world?
2: She knows that she wants to write, and yet I don't think that she's quite found her voice yet. And so I think, you know, when you look at the different voices that the characters can have in this play as well, I mean, obviously they have the voices where they talk to other people, they have the voice where they can talk about what's going on inside their head, and they also have the voice of being able to narrate what's going on around them. I think that that comes from her. Well, speaking of her vision,
0: I actually want to talk to you about her future, there's this moment at Golo where she works. She says, Thursday night, fluoro lights buzz. Elton John for the third fucking time in two hours. Hate him, depressing old fuck. I'm stuck on the register. Two hours, ten minutes left. Hag behind me asking me if we sell jam. Jam? I don't know. Tamara doesn't know because she doesn't care. She hates the idea of working there forever, like Desi. She even says explicitly, I'm not going to work in some shithouse $2 shop for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a writer. Do you think she'll succeed at
2: that? Yeah, I think she will. I think she's pretty resilient. And I think that's why we we like her as well. I mean, I think she'll probably make other mistakes along the way, but I think at the end of this, she has actually realised that through her own actions, she's actually caused squid a lot of pain and she's also probably affected his future so i think she certainly comes out of this story a bit wiser and i think also she comes out of the story with a realization that some of the things that she's been obsessed with throughout the story are pretty superficial like the formal you know and i think again that's that kind of correlates with the realization that most people have where they kind of become obsessed with um, looking forward to something at a particular moment in time and then once that passes, it was either an anti or it was good for what it was. But, you know, there's that, that sort of sense of, I guess, the bigger questions about what we're actually kind of here for as well. But it, it's interesting. I mean, I think Tamara's ending is hopeful, but the, the concern is for Squid.
0: It's not until after he attacks Tamara at the end of the play or close to the end that we start to hear his internal monologue. Yeah. And I'm curious about why that is. He says, start at the Adolescent Centre, sign a contract, Sit in class, reading the same book, The Outsiders. Start boxing. Speak to this bloke every day about shit, tattoos, Dane, feelings. It seems to me that these positive changes have given Jason a new voice. Tell us what these changes really mean for him.
2: He has to come to terms with what he's done. And I think that, you know, being removed from the kind of school environment and being given a warning by auntie that, you know, he's only got one more chance as well, I mean that he, he realises that he has to change his way. And to me, that's actually kind of hopeful too. And he's starting to see a future for himself, isn't he? Yeah, and I think it's a future that's a bit more determined by um, the choices that he makes rather than things that have happened to him as well. You know, Like in the situation where he's a victim of the things that his brother did, I think he realises that he can determine his future a little bit more. Hetchel often remembers past students.
0: It's a series of monologues that run through the play. And her miniature tales underscore the broader social environment in which she tries to affect change. Jason becomes one of her stories at the end. She remembers his first day. He tried to look like he didn't need anyone there to drop him off, to hold his hand. Came to school and got dropped anyway, like a rock, to the bottom, just like his brother. But he doesn't end up like his brother.
2: Tell us where you see Jason in 10 years. I feel quite hopeful for Jason, but unfortunately, I think it's it's not necessarily a hope that I can say, you know, he's doing this or that. I think there's something about his spirit that, again, is he's resilient and he's smart and he's loyal and he knows what's right or wrong, not necessarily in a way that we might all agree with, but he has a strong sense of what is right and wrong. and I think that for that reason, I feel quite hopeful f- for him. I think I I feel kind of willing to be surprised by what he might do. And so in that way, I think, you know, even though the ending isn't hopeful in a kind of way of going, everything works out well for him, I think it's hopeful in the sense of the possibilities for him.
1: Your casting note states that if the actors double in the manner you've suggested, they will render the voice of these extra roles rather than attempting to embody them. Mm. Can you explain what you meant by this?
2: I think it was partly about the question of not wanting to write a play where, People change hats and scarves and become somebody else in a kind of, it's certainly a mode of representation in the theatre. But I think for me, sometimes it's more about just actually having a kind of sonic presence, particularly because this play is dealing with sound so much. It's actually having a voice echo. But there are issues, obviously, when you have one actor who's playing a school teacher who we assume is white, doesn't have to be, playing Auntie, who's Aboriginal, Desi, who's Greek they're all different ages, then you know, I think that was one of the other reasons why I felt like the voice was the most essential thing. It didn't have to be about embodiment.
1: Well, The other note that you make is the staging one, and you've asked that the audience be provided with earphones playing sounds and music that make them, even for the shortest time, dance with love in their head and their heart and their eyes and in their pants. What is it about the auditory experience that you wanted to create for the audience?
2: What I wanted was for the audience to actually experience what it would be like to hear the soundtrack of the play through earphones rather than in theatre. I think it would also give them the opportunity to switch off if they'd wanted to, and I think that troubled some of the crew, whereas, you know, for me, it was an opportunity to actually block it out if you wanted to to watch the play and listen to something else would have been quite interesting and what didn't really worry me. So that's what I was looking for, is to actually create not just a story or a narrative experience or an experience where people walked away and went, they were interesting characters or they stayed with me, but to also for for them to have actually experienced what it's like to block out sound or what it's like to not hear something because you're listening to something else, what it's like to miss dialogue um, because you you haven't got that soundtrack playing. And to me, there were extraordinary possibilities in that, which as yet remain unrealised.
1: So finally, it's no secret that the adolescent years can be some of the most tumultuous and some of the best years of our lives. Silent Disco repeatedly invites us to consider how we will remember the moment or period of time in the future. How do you think the characters in this play will look back on this period of their life?
2: For each of the three main characters in the play, uh, Tamara, Squid and Petrel, this is a moment that they'll remember because the choices they made had ramifications. So I think you put hurt uh, in in perspective over time but I think also you learn lessons from it. And originally I was thinking of somehow they would actually kind of run into each other at at the formal. Mm. But it actually seems to work much better if Tamara's there alone. She got what she wanted—the dress. And she's at the formal, but actually, she's not really there in any way that she expected to be, and she's a different person. And I, I think that, you know, that, that standing in that world and not, not necessarily being the person you thought you were going to be in that world is, is quite interesting. Thank
1: you so much for talking to us about
2: your play. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for all your amazing questions and for your excellent reading of the text. Oh. <laughs> Very well. To get cast in these roles. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In
0: Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au.
1: If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter.
0: This episode was recorded in Sydney. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Kopp.